Let's talk to interesting people. Let's talk about the process of seeing things differently. Let's talk about the craft of molding truth and fiction together to arrive at something new and exciting. And let's have fun while doing it. Welcome to the True Fiction Podcast. Welcome to True Fiction, the podcast that talks to creative people to find out where their creativity comes from. I'm your host, Patrick Boggs. Norbert is on special assignment, but in his place, we have the man, the myth, the legend, Marshall. Hey, how's it going, Marshall? Good, Pat. How are you tonight? I'm doing great. Hey, we have a very special guest tonight. I'm very excited to talk to this gentleman. He is a writer, director, musician. He has directed for film and TV, and these include the Steven Spielberg Amazing Stories, the Stephen King movie Sometimes They Come Back, and the amazing Friday the 13th Part 6, Jason Lives. But I also mentioned music, and this guy is the lead singer for one of the, the true original garage bands, The Sloths. True Fiction welcomes Tom McLaughlin. Hey, Tom, how is it going tonight? Great, Pat and Marshall. Thank you for uh, you know having me on. This is, this is great. I'd love to do a show where we talk about the creative process, which is such a mysterious thing. You know, it is, and it's a personal thing to a lot of people. And we, we, we were, you were alluding to that um, before, uh, before we uh, went live uh, on the show. <laughs> I, you know, the other, well, before we talk about your directing and, uh, and, your, and your writing, which I, The Sloths, your band, The Sloth, is one of the great stories in rock and roll. Can you talk <laughs> a little bit about that? Yeah, it really is a kind of an unusual thing to be, you know, a group that was basically unknown at a time when, you know, rock and roll was really taking off in that the 60s when we were all in our mid-teens. I mean, we were opening for The Doors, Iron Butterfly, The Animals, Kinks, you know, anybody that came down the Sunset Strip, you know, we were on, you know, the, the same bill with them at these various clubs that were, you know, all over the strip. You know, we were very kind of innocent to the scene and basically we're doing it because for one, we got girls screaming and, uh, you know, that was a big thing when you're 15, 16. And also that it was great to basically cover the songs of the people who are our heroes, the the Rolling Stones, the Beatles, you know, all those British uh, invasion groups, you know, had such a huge influence on us. And of course, led us in the direction to the people that influenced them, which were the, you know, the great blues and R&B players from, you know, John Lee Hooker, you know, through B.B. King. I mean, a list goes on and on who influenced those guys. So, you know, you find that you go back and start researching and, you know, you really get to some very incredible music um, in its earliest form before it, you know, goes down all the the line of each person that kind of makes it their own. But we, um, we had recorded, the group had recorded a song called Making Love back in 65. And we were kids who took the record around. Nobody wanted to play it because the title was a bit too controversial. You know, it wasn't with any great, you know, big label or anything. And eventually we all kind of went off in different directions and it was sort of, you know, forgotten about. And then literally, I guess it's been almost 10 years now, I get a call from a private detective who had been hired by the lead guitarist of the group. And, you know, he wanted to, you know, make sure I was the same Tom McLaughlin that was part of the this group. And Turns out that the Making Love ended up becoming like a cult classic song, mainly in Europe, but it was released on this album called Back from the Grave, of which there was, I think, eight or nine different you know, albums, collections of this. And some very smart entrepreneur grabbed all these songs that he found that didn't seem like they belonged to anybody and put them out. 
you know, it's like, you know, kind of garage songs from the 60s from groups you never heard of. And for some reason, ours became a favorite. And the way we ended up getting reached was that somebody saw that on eBay, uh, a copy of the 45 Making Love sold for $6,650. Wow. And I was like, what? <laughs> you know, so um, the, the the guitarist, you know, found this out from somebody. He hired this detective, found out, you know, who's still alive and around, kind of got us all together. You know, we, we met at a uh, international house of pancakes, you know, kind of classic, you know, going back to the days when we went to those places, you know, as, as kids and started talking about, you know, what we've been doing and all that. And one thing led to, to another. And we, about a month later, we were in a garage at the drummers playing the stuff that we had not played in 40 something years. Wow. Um, so it was just this kind of bizarre, oh, you know, this will just be fun. It'll be like, you know, boys night on Wednesday night, you know, instead of playing cards, we, you know, play music, not very well, because we were all way out of, you know, practice. But as we kept doing it, you know, then the months went by, maybe six, seven months later, we decided to, you know, do a gig live just to see what that would be like. And most everybody was afraid of it, except me. And I go, hey, if they throw fruit, whatever, great, we'll eat well tonight. <laughs> um, and it just, it sparked. I don't know that people had their cell phones there, which we didn't think about. And that went on YouTube and other, you know, different uh, uh, cat podcasts and things. And the next thing we know, we had a record label, Burger Records, you know, that, that, you know, picked us up. You know, we did our very first album, something we wanted to do 50 years ago. Right. Um, it got released on vinyl. We did that, you know, we've been doing music videos, been doing tours. Um, it's it just been incredible because here's a bunch of guys, you know, in their 60s. And at this point, I'm 70. One of the guys is like 72 or something like that. But we're on stage and we are literally rocking out and performing harder than we did you know, when we were teenagers and it just kind of goes to prove, you know, the age is not an issue. It's the passion. And if you still have a dream and something that you want to do, shit, if it takes that many years to do it, you end up doing it full out. I mean, I look like I had just taken a shower in my, with my clothes on at the end of the show. You know, it's just, you know, one of those things that I just, you know, go full out as does everybody else in the group. So it's, it's been a you know, wonderful experience and connecting too with an, a younger audience who has never seen like a show band, um, you know, because I do a lot of performing with all the background things I've done over the years. So it's, you know, it's something that's been, you know, an incredible surprise later on in life of a, you know, creative enterprise that you never thought would ever actually happen. Yeah. You know, I watched a video of you guys and I said, this cannot be the same band that started in the, in the, in 65. This just can't, they're just too energetic and it's, this is crazy. I, I thought you guys were a different band. So after reading up on, I was just blown away by what you guys put into all this, into your shows. It really is like when I'm up there and I look out at the crowd, I swear I'm looking at the same people I went to high school with. I mean, because they, you know, people are still kind of dressed the same. There's, you know, there's obviously uh, all the decades, you know, you see people that look punk, you see people that look, you know, new age, you know, indie rock people, you know, people that still look like they're surfers from back in the day. Right. You know, and it's, it's weird because you just kind of like cross this weird line of uh, it's things that are kind of timeless. And the music that we're doing is the same stuff that was done, you know, by blues artists in the, you know, the 20s and 30s and 40s and has a kind of evolved, you know, to this point where we can do it full out because it's what we really know. It's what, you know, was so much a part of our, you know, teenage passion. So, you know, it comes out a little differently than bands that are just sort of adopting that style now, as opposed to, shit, this is what we know. 
knows this is what we're going to have to play. So it's, it's, you know, been very rewarding in that regard. Oh, I think it's uh, it's, it's fabulous. Hey, uh, what are the plans for 2021 for the Sloss? Anything uh, coming up? I noticed you guys did a lot of dates um, in March, was it? In, in around Texas last year, but uh, what's going on this year? Well, unfortunately, March was the beginning of the pandemic. And so, I mean, we had some great shows lined up, Uh, one in particular um, at the uh, Echoplex here in in, uh, Los Angeles or Hollywood, which was the place where the Stones did their secret show. A lot of bands do. It's a very cool venue. And Burger Records, you know, who was our label, you know, was hosting this thing. And there were so many great acts that were a part of the thing. And we were really looking forward to that. And bang, you know, that got cut. And then the whole Texas touring of which we were going to also break off and do some other shows like in Nevada and other places. All of that, you know, was canceled. We had recording dates for this, you know, next album that we're doing. So we got half an album still to have to finish, you know, you know, none of that could happen. So, you know, we kind of went on this, you know, hold until when? I don't know. I mean, yeah. <laughs> you know, we're, we're not 20 any longer. So it's like <laughs> a long clock keeps ticking and I keep going, you know, we can't let this thing die and we can't die before we, you know, get to where we're supposed to get. So it's like this very frustrating, you know, just, just the other day, in fact, it was just just yesterday. I saw that they were having bands at the whiskey, a go-go performing separately and then going on streaming, you know, and I went, I know you guys are going to say no, but I have put it out there. I mean, and I'm just dying to get back out there on stage again. And it's like, nope, nope, until we get the vaccines or something, we just don't want to risk it. And I understand. I mean, we're all long in the tooth, so it's not like, you know, it's not going to affect us uh, if we got it. But at the same time, it's sort of this thing of, you know, can't we just do everything that we know is safe and, you know, hope for the best? But, you know, we live in a world that has just been stopped. And so there's not a whole lot we can do other than try to you know, stream some of the older stuff. Or I did a music video um, with the, I also teach film at uh, uh, Chapman University Dodge College. Nice. And I had one of my students edit together basically one of our older songs. And we made a thing about, or I made a thing about 2020 and all the stuff going on. And it's a song called uh, Want a New Life. And it's sort of just this rant about, you know, life not what I thought it was going to be. And, you know, and it was sort of a, when I wrote it, it was kind of like a teenage cry out for what the hell happened, you know, and because you feel that as a teenager and you certainly feel it later in life. So I decided to put it together with, you know, images of, of 2020 and all the things that were going on. And everybody sort of freaked because it was like it sounded like we didn't know what side we were on politically. We didn't know. And I'm going, it's not about sides. It's just like in the 60s when we were objecting to things that were wrong. You know, and what what can we do? Is there anything to do and stuff? So it sort of also just kind of sat there. We didn't get any real promotion of the thing, and you know, and I thought, okay, I got to come up with something else now because I just still feel that you know urge to keep putting something out there about the band um, and that's somehow relevant, you know, to to where we are now. So you wear a lot of hats, uh, you know, between writing, directing, and also playing in the band. What is your most favorite creative endeavor? That's really impossible to say because I find whenever I'm, you know, in a particular zone, you know, like if I'm writing a certain type of project, that's all that exists. I mean, you know, everything about it 
outsider obsesses me with either what I'm watching on TV, if I'm going someplace, you know, ideas come up. Oh, what about this? You know, yeah, what if this happened in a market? You know, if this one scene, you know, you're just finding you're very kind of attuned to everything around you for that project. The same thing if, you know, if we have an upcoming show, I start coming up with new ideas of stuff I would like to try on stage, you know, with that particular song or maybe the introduction to the band or come, you know, end with something unique. And it creates an adrenaline that is just, you know, incredible. The best thing, obviously, is doing a film where you're getting a chance to obviously write, work with all these other talented people, you know, inspire people, have them inspire you. So it's a constant, you know, 80 people a day that you're answering questions to and, and you know, trying to find the best way to do things in the allotted amount of time with the allotted budget. So, I mean, that's probably the most you know, um, you know, complete experience where you just have so much going on that you don't want to sleep. You don't want to eat. You want to just keep going. You know, all the other things are just, you know, wonderful things as each thing happens. But I find that being able to jump from one genre to the other in filmmaking or to go from being a writer to, you know, you know, being a, uh, professor of film to then going back and being on stage to, you know, that diversity really kind of allows things to, you know, start, start up fresh and never get really like in a routine. It, it always ends up being, you know, kind of a new attack on things. I love the idea of uh, the, you know, the story of the sloths where that was a, you know, almost like a creative seed that you planted years ago, you know, that came to fruition after, you know, mm-hmm. oh, um, yeah. so much other creative success. Yeah. It, it, it was, it was a, you know, nothing one could ever plan or, you know, think somehow, oh, we could orchestrate this. It just, you know, happened. And as we kind of started the thing, we realized, you know, we're like the last survive or we in particular, like one of the only surviving lead singers of the Sunset Strip at that time period. Wow. You know, the Sky Saxon of the Seeds, um, uh, lead singer of the love, obviously Jim Morrison. I mean, you can go down the list of all these guys that were lead singers of these bands and like everybody's gone. And I thought, well, that's really weird. I'm, <laughs> I'm still standing um, for whatever mm-hmm. reason. But a lot of it was, I think, as I got out of the scene in 69 when, you know, the heavy drugs started to really hit and the scene got very psychedelic and Manson hit LA and suddenly anybody with long hair was a hippie murderer. And it just, everything kind of soured in a weird way. You know, I moved off into pantomime of all things because I wanted to be a more visual lead singer. So I took off at 19 to Paris to study with Marcel Marceau. And in that process of trying to be more physical of a performer, I realized I can do physical comedy. So that became the next, you know, career move, you know, shifted out of rock and roll. And all through the 70s, I basically was a, a, a mime in a costume, in a, you know, you know, in a movie, like a mutated bear in John Frankenheimer's Prophecy or Captain Star in The Black Hole or Robot in Woody Allen's Sleeper. Or I had a band, I had a, sorry, a group called the L.A. Mime Company and we were on the Dick Van Dyke series. And I managed to take the mime and kind of do a much more commercial thing with it, um, which again, when I said I was going to Paris to be a mime, a what? Uh, you know, and I'd never even heard the word prior to maybe six months before I went over there. So it was a, you know, again, one of these weird impulses. I, I, I feel like I need to do this. I feel like I need to leave family, girlfriend, band and go in on this mission that I didn't know. And I didn't speak a word of French. So it was it was quite a, a year experience. 
that's a great segue into uh i had an epiphany watching um you did a very hilarious skit called uh mike gets into shape and it's yeah. the uh the mime mike and um yeah. the uh which i it, hilarious i love that it's great and i and i started to realize as watching that so many people you know we see that and um like other areas of mime, it's um, a lot of comedy. Um, but mm-hmm. whenever I seen you in the Mike costume, it made me realize that and the Jason Voorhees is also a type of mime, but portrayed in a dramatic or horror style. Um, yeah. I was wondering too, could you talk a little bit about the how mime has maybe helped other creative endeavors of yours? Yeah, absolutely. The, the, the kind of going back to my childhood, my father, um, was a USC film student. And so I inherited his love of movies and wanted to make movies right from, you know, as early as I can remember. And one of the things he would do was run old Charlie Chaplin, you know, silent comedies on Sunday nights with a 16 millimeter projector and a sheet on the wall. And that influence of Chaplin and his, the stories and the, uh, obviously the comedy and things definitely had an impact on me. So when I eventually, you know, started going into the mime world, I realized, yeah, there's something really, you know, wonderfully universal about creating characters and situations that don't require words. And as D.W. Griffith said, you know, when we created film, we created the first universal language. Anybody in any place in the world, whether you're six years old or 60, understands in silent movies what's going on. And the good ones did have had very few title cards. So the story literally was based on what you saw, you know, and what you got from wide shots, close ups, you know, whatever of the characters and the storytelling. And so that had a major impact on me going, you know, these are the characters in movies that you really remember. I mean, Rambo doesn't have a whole lot of lines. Usually John Wayne didn't, you know, a lot of the great, you know, stars, um, you know, that even in the talkie era, uh, Clint Eastwood, you know, and his, his characters, you know, had one or two great one-liners, but so much of it was about, you know, the action and how they look and what they do. So putting that into obviously sketches and comedy and stuff, it was great because we could play to a very large audience um, that way. And when I started to go into, you know, deciding I was going to write and direct movies, my production company uh, is called Cinemime, which, you know, to me was cinema and mime, the combination of visual cinema. And one of the courses that I actually teach at uh, Chapman University is introduction to uh, visual storytelling. And I put the emphasis with the kids every week on making something that the story, everything about it, the character, whatever it is, is is completely expressed through what we see, how you use the camera, who it is, what you're photographing. And I mean, it's amazing to see the things that you know, people come up with and it gives them a groundwork in what movies have always been, you know, which is a very visual medium with sound or music that then of course affects your emotions on top of that. Absolutely. You know, I never even thought about that, but absolutely, you know, talking about John Wayne and Clint Eastwood. Well, even if you look at uh, superheroes and like the, you don't have a chatty superhero, Batman is very quiet. Um, yes. <laughs> you know? <laughs> That's awesome. Yeah. So yeah, when they, so when they do speak, it definitely has some power, you know, and that's why I think it's so crucial that they do have great comebacks or one-liners and sometimes, you know, just the intensity of how they'll say, you know, I'm Batman. I mean, it's like the crowd goes nuts, you know, because we've been waiting for that moment. And it's funny in films, um, you know, you're always looking for that, that moment of impact with the crowd that actually elicits a response. 
you know, the movies that I love and love to make are the ones that either are comedy or horror or invoke tears, something where it actually creates an emotion in a person and that, you know, and they walk out of there going, shit, I never thought I would cry on something like that. Or how many people just can't watch the end of It's a Wonderful Life without tearing up, you know, it, 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 there's so many of these things in our, in our collective past movies that really we all shared wherever we were in the world and so much of that had to do with you know how how we perceived it at that point in our life or the fact that it just it works you know in terms of the human condition that's a fantastic insight to it too and i've i've even heard um it's cool to hear you talk about that just from um you know i've heard oftentimes the uh, part six you know being credited as a jason with more feeling to it and, and a little more heart and storyline than the others i was wondering could you talk about the the writing experience for that yeah um when i started making well my first film it literally came from an experience in Paris where I went down into the catacombs. And in those days, basically, you, you know, you went down this long, long flight of stairs, narrow stairs. They gave you a candle and you were part of a small group that would walk through. And for those who have never seen pictures or, or haven't been to the catacombs, I mean, it's maybe, you know, five, six feet wide. And it's just walls of skulls and bones from God knows how many cemeteries over the centuries, you know, all that stuff, all those bones when the cemeteries were dug up to put buildings up and things, they put all that stuff down in the catacombs. So you're walking through just you know centuries of humanity. And of course, there's that side of me that just had to do something in that situation. So I pulled away from the crowd. I let everybody go ahead of me. Wow. So now I'm by myself walking through these corridors with this little candle. And I mean, it was like right out of a Roger Corman, Edgar Allan Poe movie, you know. <laughs> and for the first time in my life and pretty much since, I felt that supernatural fear where there's like, there's nobody coming after me. There's no reason to be afraid, but boy, the, you know, the hairs on the back of my neck literally went up and I was like, okay, got to find the group, got to find the group. <laughs> and that feeling stuck with me so that the first movie I did, uh, which ended up being called One Dark Night, was about a girl having to spend the night in a mausoleum, you know, so I modernized it, but there was a power in there that caused the crypts to open up and all these, you know, corpses didn't walk like zombies. They floated under this person's power. And it was like a kind of a roller coaster fun ride of trying to get out of this place being pursued by dead bodies. And that all came from that, you know, that one feeling and experience there. And that, you know, was kind of a complete fluke in that everybody was making R-rated slasher movies at that time. The MPAA gave me a PG, which was like, what? You know, I thought wow. we were like scaring people and we were doing corpses and maggots. It's like, yeah, but you have no sex. You never fuck, you know, uh, you know if, and there's no blood. There's not a drop of blood. So we went like we didn't want a PG. But what occurred <laughs> was that parents and grandparents took their kids to go see this thing because they figured, oh, it's a PG film. It's, it can't be that bad. <laughs> and when it takes off at the end and this becomes this onslaught over the decades, I've had people go, you know, I. I, I couldn't sleep for a week. You know, that movie just, I mean, it was, it just been great that it's become sort of its own little strange cult thing because kid people saw it when they were kids. And that movie eventually got into the hands of an executive at Paramount who they needed to make another Friday the 13th because the previous one, the 
audience was very upset because it wasn't Jason at the end of the movie. Turned out it was an ambulance driver impersonating Jason doing the kills. And they led the idea, or put the idea out there that the next one might lead to it being the kid Tommy Jarvis who would be Jason. And the fans were pissed. So mm-hmm. they needed to get another one out there, not the usual two years apart, but one year. And they called me and said, you know, would you meet? And I go, I really don't want to do one of these kind of movies, but you know, can I put comedy in it? And then what do you mean? I said, well, I just want the characters to be fun and, and have a sense of humor and that the genre, I mean, this is part six. We, we got to do something where we're kind of being, you know, satirical a little bit, but I'm, you know, not going to make fun of Jason or any of that. So I got the gig and I was given total control. All I needed to do is figure out a way to bring Jason back from the grave. And the one idea that I had initially in the script about introducing Jason's father at the end of the movie, I had to take that out because they said, I don't want to at all let this audience think that the next movie is going to be about Jason's dad and not Jason. So, you know, take that part out. Other than that, everything in there was what I wanted to do, what I wrote, what I directed, how I, you know, worked with the actors, all of that. But at the end of it, I thought, okay, this thing's going to play maybe two weeks at the most and be forgotten about. Um, It was, we were all making these movies in the 80s that we really just thought, okay, these aren't like the cool movies of the 70s. This isn't Star Wars. This isn't, you know, Godfather or any of the classics. You know, we're just making, you know, junk food kind of movies. And then you cut to 30-something years later and, you know, a generation that looks at these 80s movies as these classics that, you know, we never saw coming. And I certainly didn't expect Jason and Freddy and, and Chucky and Michael Myers and Pinhead and all these to be the iconic monsters of a particular period as Frankenstein, Dracula, Wolfman, Mummy, all of those universal monsters were to us kids growing up. But it's, it's you know, is again, one of those things that you never would have saw coming. But I have a larger fan base than ever before now because of that movie. And it seems like each generation discovers it and seems to love the fact that it's much more of a movie than just kind of a uh, you know, exercise and, you know, killing women in different ways. And and when you had, when you've killed enough, then basically you find a way to seem like you've killed Jason at the end and move on. But I, I really went in saying, no, I want Jason to have an agenda. I want kid to have an agenda. I want the people that somehow be people you don't want to see get killed. That if, you know, you like them, you want to be, you want to keep going with them in the movie, but you understand they got in the wrong place at the wrong time. Somehow all of that worked. Uh, and it was certainly no genius on my part. I just did what I felt I needed to do to, you know, to walk away with a little bit of dignity about doing a slasher movie. So, you know, it, it, it was a, a real surprise uh, that it's, it's had such longevity. Well, I have to tell you that we... Uh, not too long ago, we were uh, lucky enough to talk to C.J. Graham, and we talked oh, yeah. to him, we talked to him. You know, the the Jason from that movie. We talked to C.J. a lot about Vengeance because we watched Vengeance and really, really liked it. I thought that was an amazing. There was this guy that played a guy in the graveyard. Was he was fantastic? I don't know if you know the guy. <laughs> Uh, <laughs> yeah, my brother. Uh, oh, yeah. You know, brother yeah, he in there all the time, you know, takes credit, pisses me off. Son of a gun. Guy's got an ego, what can I say? <laughs> the one thing that blew me away with from Vengeance was the father's story. That was just like, you have just, to me, it ignited my love again for Jason. Now we wonder, you know, the mother, the father, you know, this lineage that caused this to be. And I think... Oh man, that would have been. I mean, I'm glad, you know, that that it came out in vengeance and um 
and that when they and we got to experience some of that. But I, yeah. you know, I wonder about you know what if 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 it had been in a six, I wonder what what it would have been like. Well, you know, it was uh, for anybody that you know sees any of those supplemental um, you know editions on on the, on the different you know DVDs and Blu-rays and stuff on the Friday. You know, they they actually did take my storyboards and then get the actor who played the um, uh, caretaker to come in and voice it. So you kind of get to see what the scene was going to be. Um, But I think, you know, they they wanted me to do the sequel, you know, the part seven. And I said, I really don't have any idea of what to do. Uh, I feel like I put everything I know into this one. And the fact that we don't have Jason's father at the end, that would have been, you know, obviously a, a way to go, you know, to, you know, the next one would have him involved, not be just him, but of course, you know, it's relationship with his son and stuff. So we didn't do that. They had no interest in, you know, doing the next one with Jason's father. So they asked me if I wanted to do Freddie meets Jason. And I said, how, sure. How can you going to do that though? That's with new line. This is paramount. And they said, well, we're trying. And of course that negotiations didn't work out till, I don't know, 12 years later or something. And then I jokingly said, well, how about Cheech and Chong meet Jason? And, <laughs> you know, he laughed and I said, I don't, it's the same audience. You know, everybody smokes the same weed that would go to these things. <laughs> and he goes, I don't know. I, you know, I just think, that, you know, the Jason people are not one spend that time with Cheech and Chong, the Cheech and Chong people probably aren't going to want to see the bloodshed of Jason. And I go, I I somehow think they might, but nevertheless, it it didn't happen. And as the years have gone by and I've told this story, so many people go, oh God, that would have been great, you know, because it is the same audience, you know, the rock and roll audience that I cater to, they all know the movies, all the horror movies, all that. I mean, it all became part of the same pop culture. You know, it was like a missed opportunity oh, that occurred. Yeah. But when Jeremy Brown uh, contacted me about, you know, taking the Jason's father story and wanting to make a film out of it, a fan, a fan funded film, I said, yeah, I mean, you know, go with God, go with Jason's dad, you know, <laughs> see what you can come up with that I didn't. I would love to see, you know, the idea done. And then, of course, when he told me CJ would be playing the character, I thought all the more how great that is and then he said and we'd love you to come up and you know be in the opening scene as the grave digger so that you'd actually play opposite you know cj you know which of course i just love that to be able to actually you know act with the with the big guy there so that was definitely a lot of fun and they they put you know everything but the kitchen sink in that movie i mean you could never release that you know in in theaters and and get anything other than a triple x (laughs) and bloodshed because you know we we were all constantly being censored like crazy by the mpaa you know to try to get that this the level of you know blood and guts and kills and stuff down in those movies but i tried to be as sensible as i could with it knowing i was going to face that and tried to always shoot somewhat alternative ways of doing things so if i did run into trouble i had something else you know to put in its place yeah absolutely that's awesome i seen and i i have to apologize i haven't seen it yet and i don't know if it's out yet but never hike alone the ghost cut a friday the 13th fan film anthology so what is that now, Vincent, um, who, who who did those, you know, Never Hike uh, Alone and Never Hike Alone in the Snow, he's like one of the greatest experts on the whole Friday the 13th franchise I've ever met. And obviously huge fan of, of Jason Lives. So when he made this movie, there's a lot of nods to it. And of course, the big thing is that he got Tom Matthews, who played my Tommy Jarvis in that movie yeah. as well. 
So when he invited me to the screening, I was just blown away, you know, what he what he pulled off and the surprise of seeing some of those elements from my, you know, my movie in there. And uh, yeah, then I guess when he did the next one, I think somebody had told me yeah, there was a mention of me, you know, in the credits. But Vincent, uh, Vincent and I actually came up with the same idea at the same time, even though it's not that new, it has been being touted for years, which is, you know, setting a Friday the 13th in a winter setting. I've written a, a screenplay called uh, Jason Never Dies. And with that whole idea that it actually takes place um, on the Thanksgiving weekend with a group of young girls on a Catholic retreat being at a you know, retreat across the lake from Crystal Lake, you know, Camp Crystal Lake. And they are completely oblivious to the fact that they're, you know, that there was ever a Jason or any of that. So it's a completely kind of fresh approach into that. And I've put a lot of surprises and kind of twists and turns and story elements in the thing. But, you know, I'm strapped with this lawsuit that is going down and nobody can do anything Friday the 13th until Sean Cunningham and Victor Miller, who are the writer and the and then the producer, you know, come to some agreement. But Vincent, who had a similar idea about doing Jason in the Snow, was able to do his as a fan-funded film right. and managed to get it out, you know, ahead of time. So I was sort of like, well, shit, that idea is not going to be as fresh. <laughs> but ours are so different from each other because we had no idea one another was even doing that, that, you know, there's certainly, you know, no no comparisons. But, you know, he, he really, you know, as I said, knows so much about at the whole genre and that whole thing. It's it's I'm really curious to see what he does next. I've actually seen one of those flicks, but I haven't seen all of them. So yeah, I know exactly what you're talking about. You know, that's really sad. I know that there is this thing in Hollywood where you get these um, movies that are great ideas, but can't be done because of different legal reasons or whatever. Yeah. I really love the idea that you set up there. Um, of course, who, who can't love a bunch of Catholic girls getting hacked to pieces by Jason? So, I mean, come on. Well, well, I mean, the, the other caveat to that is that is the uh, these are badass Catholic girls. These are the girls that have to go to this retreat because of the sins that they've been doing through the school year. And they will not move on to the next grade if they don't come to this thing and repent. And it's being headed up by this tough Irish nun, the kind that I had when I grew up, you know, <laughs> that is, you know, no nonsense. So Jason is basically facing, you know, some some pretty interesting adversarial you know, people. So it's not like they just sit there and take it. So, you know, there's a lot of fun in terms of, you know, those confrontations and stuff that occur. And I've tried to play around with that whole idea since it's all females and only one male, which is Jason, it becomes sort of, you know, questioning, well, who's going to be the final girl at the end of this whole thing? Because every one of them has a possibility, but every one of them also you could see being the person that might not make it. So, um, you know, I've, I've hopefully created something that I know the fans will like and hopefully I can get to make it some someday. But it's just it's too expensive, unfortunately, to do it as a fan film because yeah. of shooting an entire movie in the snow at night you know, sets that would have to be built for cabins and things to, you know, make some of this stuff work. And I have an opening sequence is probably the most elaborate that would have ever been done for a Friday the 13th. And it's like, I really want to do that. And I don't want to do it cheaply. It needs to be done, you know, correctly. So I'm going to just kind of wait it out and hopefully, you know, I won't be <laughs> laying in my coffin holding the <laughs> script. So we'll see. That sounds amazing. And then you make them badass and that's even better. I, I love that idea. You know, my favorite movies are Alien um, and Sigourney Weaver is the is the most badass woman I've ever seen. But one of the badass, most badass heroes I've ever seen. So, yeah, absolutely. Digging it. 
I'm going to go backtrack a little bit. Uh, just the other night, actually, we watched uh, One Dark Night. Just I, And I love that movie. I didn't even know I was going to be talking to you. I just really do uh, like that movie a lot. You know, one of those things was, um, you know, when I watched the first time, I remember, and it didn't disappoint, your, your corpses are gruesomely gooey and moist. Yeah. Um, I wondered if that was something that you always had planned or if that was something you worked out, uh, you worked out together with the FX people. No, that was, that was in the script. Um, I'm a real, (laughs) a puss and maggot man. Uh, (laughs) There's something about stuff that's pussy that is so repulsive and it's almost like you can smell it. And then of course the maggot aspect um, is again, that thing of telling you, oh, this has been dead for a while or there wouldn't be maggots there. So kind of combining those two elements instead of blood to me was going to give it its, you know, gross out factor, but you know, not doing anything that that's necessarily completely crazy. I mean, that kind of thing would happen, whether maggots would be there that much longer into the future, a little bit of a stretch. But the whole idea that these things aren't just shriveled up, there's also other elements on them that, you know, make it all the more, I don't want to touch it, got. And then, of course, when it goes up against the blonde girl's cheek and some <laughs> of it remains, the audience went crazy. I mean, I... <laughs> I so miss the days of seeing horror movies with audiences, um, particularly through the 80s, because they were so verbal to the screen. I mean, people just hollering and, you know, it, it was it was like a ride. And, and it was so great to hear how people would, would react to these certain things, you know, or, or you know, add punchlines where, you know, lines were set up. Like in my Friday the 13th, when Elizabeth gets killed and her hand drops and the American Express card floats, you know, and I hold on that purposely because I knew somebody would say, don't leave home without it. (laughs) And they always did. And they thought they were incredibly clever and the audience laughed. And I thought, great, you know, he got the reward of being an entertainer at that point. (laughs) So it's, but it was at a time when people truly did participate in the process of watching the movie. And we've kind of lost that, unfortunately. And every time I go, you know, and I went to go see it or any of the more recent ones, I was hoping that the crowd was going to go nuts and they sit there like they're watching TV, you know, and it's, it really bothers me because I, you know, I want to see them get, you know, excited, get, get into it. But I think it's just been, everybody's been so processed by the, you know, just sit and watch and then, you know, text about it or, you know, go with a friend and, you know, and you quietly talk to each other about, yeah, that's cool. Yeah. Like, you know, none of this, you know, loud vocal response. Yeah. Those were, uh, those were good times. I, I, I enjoy that too. I think fear, um, and, uh, terror from a movie is infectious and it, the more people you get packed into that theater, and then have those scares. You know, I remember when I was a kid and I went and seen Jaws. I wasn't allowed to go until, I mean, late. The, the, the thing was almost over its run. It had run for weeks and weeks and weeks. And my mom just said, no, you can't go. Finally, I guess I begged enough for something and she let me go. And uh, even then, even then that crowd was just packed and everybody yeah. was up and yelling and screaming at it. So it was awesome. Yeah, I mean, that, that was the beginning of the blockbuster. I think that term was even coined from, from Jaws. But, you know, that and, of course, you know, his poltergeist and Halloween and, of course, the granddaddy of them all, the exorcist, the reaction of the crowd was, was unlike anything I've ever seen since. People passing out, people running up the aisle with their hand over their mouth before they threw up, people just standing shocked in the aisle when it was over, not being able to move. I mean, it was an amazing experience. Wow. Um, 
unlike anything that, I don't know if anybody could do anything like that. And again, I mean, it was just, nobody expected it. Yeah, definitely a moment in time. I, I've, uh, I, unfortunately, I never got to see it uh, in the theater. And I have to say that when I seen, I did finally see The Exorcist. Uh, I was with a group, my family. We had all the lights on, and uh, and and I, would, I was asleep over with my buddies, and we just, you know, laughed at it. And I, I just was like, yeah, you know, I missed. I feel like I missed out on something <laughs> there, you know. <laughs> yeah, unfortunately, yeah, that's happened to a lot of people. Um, uh, at, at my school, Wayne Freakin came. My son was a, a graduate from, wow. from Dodge Film School as well. And he was at the, the screening of The Exorcist there with, you know, today's you know college-age kids uh, and Freakin there to talk about it. And he was not happy about the way they didn't react, you know. You know and, and the questions and stuff was were kind of not sarcastic, but, you know, I don't understand why you, or, you know, and so it was not a happy experience for him, particularly knowing, you know, the way this movie was originally perceived, but yeah, it, it just, things change over time. And what, you know, certain movies that you think are, you know, were, were such a joke at the time, suddenly now are like, you know, classic camp, you know, in, in the best way, you know, or, or, you know, things that weren't that scary suddenly now in retrospect, you know, yeah, that really nailed it, but you just don't know. You know, right. you, you, is there any particular you know piece of cinema or film that has helped mold you as a director or writer? Um, anything that sticks out that was a, a major influence to you? Well, I I literally have just said it. <laughs> oh, yeah, sorry. <laughs> um, you know, not that I've um, necessarily made one of those movies. I actually did. Uh, I was on the Friday the 13th TV series as a writer-director from episodes and then also as a story editor on the show. And for the third season, Frank Mancuso Jr., who was the executive of that series, as well as the executive on the uh, Friday the 13th movies, said, you know, I want you to come up with a exorcist-type, you know, possession story for the two-part opening of the third season. And one of our lead actors... Uh, who plays Ryan, wants to leave the show. So we have to kill him off. But you can't kill him off so that he's dead because we know after he works at McDonald's for a few weeks, (laughs) he's going to want to come back. So figure out a way to get rid of him, but, you know, make sure that if we want to bring him back, we could. So that was my marching orders on that. So I ended up coming up with a very kind of Catholic-based story of a nun who was very religious, who had you know, visions of the Virgin Mary when she was a child and people would come to her for healings and stuff. And there was a fallen angel, Astaroth, played by Fritz Weaver, who was just great as this, you know, one who was going to, you know, kill this this nun in the presence of all these believers and show how Satan's power is far greater, you know, than God's. And the lead of the series got involved with this whole situation and got possessed. And the only way to depossess him was to take him back to when he was a child, when he first had a huge traumatic event, the death of his brother, which completely alienated his relationship with his mother and completely changed his whole life. And suddenly he was thrown back into that childhood body at the end of this thing. So, I mean, if you can buy everything up to that point, you basically could buy that. So, we, you know, we left that episode on a young child, Ryan, and the other two leads going, you know, now what? So, you know, they sent him back to his mother and, you know, they continued the show with another another lead. But it gave me a chance to actually go in and do, you know, like exorcism scenes, having this nun, you know, crawl up the side of a wall. <laughs> I mean, just all kinds of, you know, 
things that I could do for a dollar ninety eight, but you know, <laughs> at least it gave me a chance to kind of get a little of that out. But the movie itself taught me so much about sound effects, about you know how you set up things. You know, of course, no humor in it, but all the different ways that you manipulate in an audience with sound, with picture, you know, obviously dialogue. There was so much in that movie that I went, you know, this gives people an experience beyond just a piece of entertainment. And I've tried to do that in a number of the films, but nine out of 10 times, you know, we're entertainers and we have to come up with stuff that entertains people for 90 minutes or whatever. So it's like whatever you can find that generate some element of surprise, some element of caring, something emotional that it touches. Um, I mean, that's the most important thing. But as I said, when I saw The Exorcist, that had, you know, for all the movies I saw, you know, it was like nothing compared to that. So of course, that ended up being right up there as, you know, the benchmark. I think one thing I really like about The Exorcist is this, and I I don't mean it, I don't mean this in a, uh, like a, Born way, but it's an adult movie. It, it deals with adult subjects. Um, yeah. the, it's a drama horror, and I I really like that. You know, and I I I do love to see comical horror, but you know the it's I always think of the 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 Exorcist as a real deal. You know? mm-hmm. Yeah, it it is because it did send a lot of people back to church. Yeah. Um, it, it it had a really incredible you know repercussions within the society which was amazing. But that was at a time too, when everybody was, I think the cover of time or Newsweek was, is God dead? And, you know, the omen and all, you know, Rosemary's baby, that was a period where there was this whole thing about, you know, is religion over? And what does that mean? And, you know, what are all the the different things that now become tropes, you know, in horror movies about possession and and lack of faith or whatever, you know, huge, you know, huge effect uh, that those those movies had. And and I was part of this thing that Joe Madri did, which was a horror movies over the decades, American horror movies, great documentary. I think it was Horror in Red, White and Blue, I think was the title of it. And he broke it down from the silence all the way each decade, kind of where the emphasis was on horror, whether it was like in the 50s with the sci-fi stuff and the worry about the atomic bomb and, you know, giant ants, giant, you know, grasshoppers, all that stuff that was part of the 50s things into the the Roger Corman era and, and Fred Ground Poe stuff in the 60s and the Hammer horror movies and stuff. And then the 70s with the Is God Dead and, the, you know, Exorcist and Omen and all that. And each one, you know, kind of, you know, tra- traces through all the way up to where we are now with the, from the paranormal activity to the conjuring and those movies that are being done. But they all seem to you know, either create what happens in society or somehow a reflection that people can identify with. I, I just find, you know, if you find a way to somehow pull two genres together in a way that it you haven't seen those two things merge, it feels brand new. You know, it feels like you haven't seen that before. And the movies that tend to do that are the ones that really seem like groundbreakers. But the truth is, and there's nothing truly original anybody can come up with, but they can certainly take the influences of a number of things and you put them together and it comes up as, God, that I've never seen. So it, it's, again, that part of that, obviously, your show's about the creative process is taking those different influences in your life and somehow, you know, applying them to your work. Now, obviously, I've gone on and on about The Exorcist, but if you were to ask me if you had to take one movie on a desert island by yourself for the rest of your life and that's the only one you could have what would it be it's a wonderful life really oh wow because frank capra i happened to seen that movie 
only the end. So many different times on TV, never knew what the movie was, but I found myself emotional at the end of a movie. I had no idea what the story was. And finally, Frank Capra came to a film seminar that I went to, and I saw the movie, and I went up to him and just gushed. He gave me his his address and his phone number. He said, yeah, call me anytime. We can talk. And he became my mentor so that when I wrote my script that was after Friday the 13th, Date with an Angel, I bounced things off of him. He saw the movie. He gave me a quote. What a wonderful movie. He loved it. You know, it was, you know, he had me come to the his AFI tribute that they had. He was my hero and still remains that because what Frank knows how to do is talk to people on the screen. And it's a, as he always said, it's a people-to-people relationship. So that's what you try to do with the work is get people to come somehow care about you know, who's on the screen there. And the movies, particularly a lot of the franchise movies where you don't care about, you know, if you're just watching effects, you know, you're really not, you know, involved. But when you're smart, like Sam Raimi was with the first Spider-Man or what Robert Downey Jr. did with Iron Man, you love those guys. You care, you root for them. And all that other stuff is just wonderful, you know, eye candy and effects, but it really just gets down to character and caring. And that's really what I got from Capra more than anybody else is try to get the audience to connect, you know, with those leads, you know, be loving this little girl who suddenly becomes demonized, you know, or it wouldn't have worked if she was some little shit. You wouldn't care. <laughs> That's right. But That's those mother true. and daughter scenes and something as small as Ellen Burstyn taking an eyelash off of her daughter's eye and that little tiny intimate moment all had sort of residual effects of, oh, no, 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 not her. She's so, oh, you know. And as I said, seeing it at that time where you became so vulnerable to these images and what was going on, then when the horror started up, boy, you were, you know, you were ready to run. You know, they had amazing. you. They absolutely yeah. had you. Hey, speaking of that, yeah, I, you know, that's amazing that you, your mentor was a uh, capper. That's just, wow, you can't beat that. <laughs> yeah, people can't believe it. You know, the guy who wrote Jason, you know, Jason lives. He's a Capra fan. (laughs) Well, you know what? I I had some questions about that. What is it? I married an angel or I found an angel? What is that? Uh, A date date, date with an angel. A date with an angel. Yeah, I was thinking, how did this happen? And now (laughs) uh, you answered my question. That's awesome. But I did have uh, a question for you. Um, What do you feel is better, a mediocre idea with great execution or a great idea with a mediocre execution? Oh, I got to I, I, I have to say the mediocre idea with the great execution <laughs> because there's there's so few great ideas. And I get so frustrated when somebody tells me, gives me like the, you know, the the pitch of what this, you know, this movie is. And you go, that sounds great. And then you go in there and you're going, oh, my God. Oh, oh gee, you know, now, case in point, And I don't hope I don't piss anybody off by saying this, but the new Wonder Woman movie. I didn't see the first one. Not that I didn't want to, it just circumstances. I hadn't seen it. So when the new one was going to be on, and unfortunately for them, they had to stream it and stick it in whatever few theaters there are. I thought, okay, I'm going to sit and watch the second Wonder Woman. It's got to be good. The other one had so many great things. And I sat, I wanted to throw something at my own TV (laughs) screen. I was livid how bad the, you know, the filmmaking was in terms of story and how long they would stay on sequences of talking and exposition. And it's like, how could the other one be so great that if this is what the second one is? And that's usually where you try harder. And this was like, to me, lazy in every every way, shape and form. And I went on 
line to hear, you know, other podcast people. And of course, there were a lot that were far more pissed off than me because they loved the first one and were really mad, you know, or it was like, no, it's not it's pretty good. I kind of enjoyed it. Yeah, yeah. And I went, okay, you know, they have no idea about filmmaking then. Mm. But then I watched the first one and I went, son of a bitch. Yes, this thing is great. It, you know, it's got every rule that needs to be there. You care. She was the one going through stuff, not the guy that she was showing stuff. I mean, it was like everything was right. And somehow by trying to flip that around and do something different with it, you know, for me, seeing it out of order, it, it was like completely a nothing, you know, film that's cost a lot of money. So, you know, and I did like you know, uh, Wonder Woman, the actress at all in this, where in the first one, I thought she was sensational. So, I mean, it's interesting how things like that can happen too, where, you know, there is a great concept and should have been, you know, obviously there's very few Godfather 2s that occur where the second one is almost as better as the, than the first one, but it's still, you try to at least take it another step where you do something where, you know, you give the audience more of what they loved in the first one. I haven't seen it, and I probably won't because of the reviews. And I did like the first one. Anyway, I think it fell a little bit apart in the third act. But other than that, I thought the the first one was really good and solid. Yeah. I don't know what it... I I probably would have liked it, but I I really liked it so much after seeing the second one. Oh, yeah. So it made all the difference. (laughs) Uh, You've been on both sides of the camera. What, What? Which is better for you, a great script or a great director? I would say a great script. Um... Because, you know, whether I created it or I, I was given it, I was given it to, to direct and I was able to process it through myself and my, you know, aesthetics and my understanding of people like this or stories like this or moments like this, that discovery process, you know, is incredible. And then to be able to share that with other people on the crew and in particular, you know, the actors who are the mouthpieces or who are the, the ones that basically that's how the story is told to you through their, their emotions and, and their relationship. That is to me, you know, far more rewarding than to kind of get out there on the tightrope by yourself and, you know, be locked into whatever that character is, which is great when it's happening, you know, in that moment, you know, where you do it and the, and the director goes, that's great. You know, do you, oh, do you need another one? Nope. That's it. That's great. You know, and you feel good for like 10 seconds. <laughs> you know? yeah. I love the fact that, you know, for three months, you're preparing something for another couple months, you're shooting it. And for another, I don't know, four months, you're direct, you're editing it and putting it together. You know, it's a great way to, to spend your time, your creative time doing something that you're passionate about. But I do love getting up, you know, and playing pretend um, that is great fun. But as I said, it, it's sort of like, you know, that, you know, great ice cream, you know, it's wonderful <laughs> while you're eating and once it's over, it's like, all right, that's that. <laughs> so Tom, I got a question for you. You directed Stephen King's Sometimes They Come Back. How do you get to direct that? How does that process work that you were, I know you talked about getting the job as uh, the Jason film, but how do you get to direct, uh, how did you get to direct the Stephen King Sometimes They Come Back? All right. Um, as you can see, for a former mime, I'm very long-winded. Uh, so I'll <laughs> attempt, <laughs> I'll attempt to see if I can pull this down into cliff notes in some way. Um, Basically, after I did my Friday the 13th, Dino De Laurentiis had created his own production company, you know, uh, De Laurentiis, um, DEG, uh, Dino Laurentiis Entertainment Group. And Frank Mancuso Sr., who ran Paramount, and Frank Mancuso Jr. were at the same party that I was at 
with Dino, um, you know, in celebration of this thing. And those two guys were telling him about this, uh, you know, movie that I just did for them. And he goes, oh, that sounded great. I got the horror movie, the Stephen King movie. You would be perfect for this. And I went, well, you know, I have this romantic comedy Capra-esque movie called Date with an Angel that I've been trying to make for years. That's the one I'd really make. And he was, ah, not, you know, we, you know, I mean, he was quite a personality. I loved Dino. Uh, but he ended up, you know, doing the movie, giving it to his daughter at first, and then it became his wife, Martha, that ended up producing it. And Dino, of course, was involved. And we did Date with an Angel. Uh, when it was over, then it was like, I get Dom, now you're doing my Stephen King movie. <laughs> so I get the, um, the script, and it was written by uh, the two guys who did Jewel of the Nile, and I'm forgetting their names right now. But it was a, you know, it was a good script, but it just somehow didn't capture what a Stephen King horror movie, you know, family horror movie should be. And I really put the emphasis on family because that's kind of where I was at in my life at that point. There was a lot of things emotionally going on. And I felt like this would make this thing unique in that it have those elements of character that I felt were important. So they brought in another writer to do the rewrite. I, you know, started prepping the movie and literally it was a period my father was dying my daughter had just been born. Uh, me and the director friend of mine, Nick Garris, had created uh, two TV series for Universal, She-Wolf of London, and they came from outer space. And we had to find 20 writers, 20 directors, you know, to fill those positions. Wow. So I was on creative overload, emotional overload, and then had to go to Kansas, you know, to make this movie. For whatever reason, this movie was cursed. Everything that could go wrong went wrong. We managed to get through it uh, without anybody dying. But I mean, there was kinds of things that happened on a, on a you know movie set that were just accidents. But it really felt like somebody was out to get us. Wow. And I think we went something like eight days over schedule, which is unheard of in a low budget horror slash you know movie for CBS as well. Um, but Dino was very, very encouraging and just, you know, you'd get on the phone with me and say, you know, Tom, you making me a goddamn good picture? I said, yes, sir. <laughs> All right, keep going. And that was the end of it. You know, at the end of the day, we put this thing together. I had no idea if it was going to work. I got this composer, Terry Pomeri, who did the score that was just inspired. And somehow the whole piece came together as this very deep emotional incredibly personal movie, although I, you know, I can't say literally I went through any of that, but so much of what I was going through all sort of permeated the film. So I remember the first time my son saw it after he had grown up and he just wept through the whole thing. He says, dad, that's you. That's Tim, Math that Tim Mathis, that's you. And I, and I see pictures now and Tim and I hair was cut the same way. I mean, it was completely unconscious. Somehow we just sort of morphed into one another in terms of how we, we work together. And you know, I love Brooke Adams. You know, she was always a guilty pleasure from, you know, Days of Heaven on and, um, you know, fire, uh, Christopher Walken, Stephen King movie with her. Um, Dead Zone. Dead Zone, that's right. Dead yeah. Zone, you know. I mean, so many things that, that she did that I loved. So all those elements were just great. And I really wanted to succeed. But as I said, it just felt like I was on such emotional burnout. I was literally just you know, kind of surviving through it, doing the best creative choices I could possibly make. But then, yeah, as the years have gone on, so many people have, you know, talked about it in, in such warm and wonderful, you know, sense of it. You know, it touched them as well as it was scary and haunting 
in kind of all the right ways. So, you know, it, it, it was interesting because I've yet to meet Stephen King, but I heard that when he saw it, you know, he said, yeah, yeah, I like it. It's sort of like the best of Stephen King all in one movie. <laughs> and he was right. It had a little bit of Christine in there. It had a little Stand By Me in there. You know, all these different influences all ended up in that script, trying to flesh out that short story of his, you know, to make it into, you know, a little more of a, a cinematic Stephen King movie. You know, I, I think... Um... I've seen almost every Stephen King movie that's ever came out. And I have to say, it's hard to make one, you know, you have such great source material. It's really hard to make one that matches that. I thought, I thought sometimes to come back was, was very good. I really enjoyed it. My wife and I both enjoyed it a lot. What is your favorite Stephen King or a couple of them that, that you love that think you, they did, that they did it justice. So my wife hated storm of the century and I loved okay. it. Because yeah. I like that weird twist. And I thought that uh, for just a fun ride, uh, Maximum Overdrive, and I know people will disagree with me, but Maximum Overdrive was a solid flick uh, mm-hmm. just for the fun of it. But as for emotions, uh, honestly, that sometimes they come back is is definitely is definitely one. I, I don't think that they, I don't, for some reason, I don't think people get it right. In the, the Stephen King puts so much into his characters, it's really hard to... Hard to do that in a you know an hour and ten minutes, hour and twenty minutes, hour and a half. So I would say, yeah, I don't know what my favorite was, but I I really yeah. did like you know, and I even liked the mist, and I know people hated that movie, but <laughs> yeah, that's kind of a hot topic yeah. one. Yeah. yeah, Stephen King said that uh, I didn't write an ending like that, but I wish I would have. So yeah, wow, <laughs> yeah. Yeah, he just came out, uh, I guess, a few days ago and said Storm of the Century was his favorite of all the TV movies that, of his stuff. Oh, wow. Uh, which is interesting. But yeah, I, you know, I've talked about this so many times over the years about my feeling about Stephen uh, King's books compared to the screen versions. And I've always said the same thing, you know, starting with The Shining. Those movies, when I mean, those books, when we're reading them, we are inside the head of these characters. We're hearing their thoughts. You know, we're experiencing it through them. It's very hard to do that in, as a movie. Yeah. Um, you know, you really can't get that same, you know, intimacy, you know, because you have to have this three act structure that has to kind of adhere to certain rules and time and, and so on. And things have to be building to a certain type of a conclusion, you know, along the way. You know, there's all the stuff that in a book he can, as he did, I don't know if he still did, but he you know, puts in a you know, paper, rolls it down, starts writing and <laughs> 400, 600 pages later, he stops. I mean, it's like he's a genius so you know in a movie that's just it's so much harder to capture that but you can certainly capture aspects of those things and that's to me what the better ones have done you know is 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 like yeah that really felt like the right thing it certainly wasn't as good as the book but for a movie it really worked it really delivered but it is it is tough i didn't even think about i'm sorry i didn't even think about it which i think you're you're probably dead on with that it is hard to you know you're in the mind of these people so yeah very interesting. So are you a big fan, Stephen King? Oh, yeah. Yeah. Um, not that I've read everything, um, but uh, it's like, I just, you know, I love to hear him talk about things. I love to, you know, hear his point of view about stuff. I, you know, there's just nobody like him. And w- what I used to say, you know, when I was first starting out and was not jealous, but sort of like everybody was like, you know, Stephen King, Stephen King, you know, so original. So I go, you know what? Look at his work. He saw the same Twilight Zones. He saw the same horror movies. He saw the same Outer <laughs> Limits that we all saw, but he was smart enough not to go out and make a movie like one of those. He wrote books 
and put all that stuff in there and <laughs> put it all together. So it's like, it's not like he's truly come up with something that's not been done before. He's just put it in a form that has never been done like that. And that to me was, you know, where his genius was. And it's great when he loves stuff that you go, really? That, that thing you think that was great? It's like, yeah, I could see that kid side of him would react to that. You know, certain things that somebody <laughs> would say, you know, intellectually, that doesn't make any sense why he'd like it. But the kid in you would like maximum overdrive is a perfect example. Yeah. You know, you just want to go for it. You know, the, the <laughs> kind of thing that he would find is fun. It's really, I can't think of anybody outside of him that has ever created this mass amount of, of output of work. It's just incredible. I mean, it's, it's amazing how much of it works um, of the things he's done. Because usually that's not the case. Usually I have one or two that work and all the rest of it. You're trying to catch the magic in the bottle again that you had when you first started. Where do you where do you think your uh, what is your magic in the bottle? Which one do you feel that this is definitely Tom McLaughlin of your films? Yeah. Well, that's such a difficult question to answer. Um, that documentary that I mentioned earlier uh, that I was involved with that Joe Madri did. Um, he, after the interview, asked me if anybody ever did a book on me, and I said no. Why would they? And he goes, "You have done so many unusual things." you know, in the quest of being a filmmaker, you know, it'd be interesting to hear your story. And I go, well, if you want, I don't know. And I figured it was over and done with, but he contacted me. And for three months, he watched everything, every movie, TV show, anything, you know, uh, copy of a videotape of a stage show I directed, whatever, and looked at all the work and then put together a series of questions and then created this book of conversations with me that basically kind of tracked where I was in different parts of my life when I made choices to do this particular material and how what was going on somehow influenced that work. I would have never in a million years thought of that. I mean, I was shocked how many things he brought up because I never looked backwards. I try to keep going, all right, what's next? What's, I don't want to look what I did. I want to go to the next thing. And so to suddenly be forced to kind of go back and look at that stuff, you know, I thought, well, is this it? Is this the end of my career? I'm <laughs> wrapping it all up here. Um, but no, it, it felt like, you know, it, it, the book ends when I start teaching at uh, Chapman University. And that was sort of that transition now into kind of sharing things, but still, I'm still writing. I'm still, you know, going to be doing, you know, films as soon as this thing ends. I've got a couple of things that are sitting here in the wings that, uh, you know, we're just waiting. So it's not like it's over, but in this book, there's things where you go, well, it seems like maybe that's the one that really was the one that sort of, you know, says it all. But I, I still feel I haven't done it yet. I feel like there's still somehow that whether it's it's a wonderful life or et or some movie that comes somehow it's like that's like the gift you know you leave behind that everybody goes i'm so glad he did that that was such a great thing for me and on one level it scares me how many people at these conventions come up to me and say jason lives is that movie for for them you know <laughs> and it's like are you kidding me and it's like no, you don't understand. My, my dad had died that, that July and my mom and I didn't know what to do. And somehow we ended up seeing the movie and I don't know, there's something it, it did. And, you know, to this day, I've probably seen this movie 300 times and, I, and you go, holy shit, really? <laughs> you know, and he wasn't alone in terms of how many people talk about that. And I, to me, it was an, you know, entertainment piece and I tried to do the best I could with it. And Date with an Angel was the movie that I really tried to consciously put you know, my Frank Capra influences and things that are personal in my life that were in there. But then something like 
Sometimes they come back happens where I completely had no intention of making it anything personal. And it came out very much, you know, in, in that vein. So, you know, it's, it's hard for me to say, um, you know, it's been like 42 films now. So every one of them has stuff in there that I'm very proud of and other stuff that I go, well, you know, I had to do what the script said to do and I did it the best I could. So, you know, it's, it's like life in day to day. Certain things in the day are great and other day, things it's like, chief whiz, couldn't I like have something happen now that get me out of this funk, you know, that I'm in. <laughs> yeah. So, it, you know, the movies to me were like that, that each one is kind of a child that has flaws and great things about them. And I wouldn't say, you know, one kid is better than the other. Oh, that's a great answer. You know, it's been fantastic talking to you. We have taken up way too much of your time. This is, I've just enjoyed this immensely talking to you. you you're such well, a wealth you. of knowledge. This has been great. Yeah. Thanks for coming on. Absolutely. Oh, my pleasure. I want to tell everybody that's listening, go to thesloths.org and check out the Sloths music because it's all there. Tom has put yeah. it up there for you guys and it is pretty amazing. And, uh, you know, I think, uh, you know, I love the idea of the Tom McLaughlin book, but I also think you are a director, a writer. I'm sure you produce. And this, the Sloths, that's a fantastic story. I think people, that's a, a, something that people would love to, to know about. So just, you know, not that you don't have enough to do already. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, it's, it's all about, you know, having something to talk about in the locker room, right? I mean, it's like, try to do as many things so that at the end of it, it's like, well, you know, I got a little taste of this or that. And um, if you get a chance, and I, I will plug the book because I thought Joe Mudry did a great job. Please. It's called, um, some folks have a strange idea of entertainment. So it's strange idea of entertainment conversations with Tom McLaughlin. It's on Amazon. I don't make a penny on it, nor does poor Joe, um, because, you know, because of these kinds of things, it's just it's a, literally no money, but at least it's a, a reflection of everything that if you're a filmmaker that you might end up experiencing or, or your own version of it that literally takes from my birth all the way to, as I said, you know, with the band and that whole, you know, period happening. And it's, it's a kind of an interesting, strange journey of a kind of a Forrest Gump-like guy that I just happened to be in the front row of Monterey Pop Festival. I just happened to have Marlon Brando want to make a movie with me. And I got to sit with Brando for three hours and listen to stories. I mean, there's so many of these weird things in my life I look back <laughs> on. The other day I was, I was watching this thing that Muhammad Ali was on. I went, holy shit, I forgot that day I was walking down Hollywood Boulevard and I looked in this magic shop and this guy waved me in and I came in and it was Muhammad Ali and the owner of the store and for a half hour Muhammad Ali did magic tricks for me. Wow. I, I completely forgot about that. You know, I mean it's like these weird little events that somehow will occur that you know you go, God, I really feel blessed. And well, like like the saying goes, it's a wonderful life. <laughs> Absolutely. That's awesome. Tom, we're gonna let you go. I really appreciate okay. your time. And uh hey, I'd love to talk to you again sometime down the road. Sure. That'd be awesome. Hey, have a great right. night. Thanks a lot. Thank you. Thanks, Tom. Thank you, Pat. Thank you, Marshall. Really appreciate it. You know, take take care. Stay safe. God bless. You as well. Thank, Thank you. 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 too. Thanks for hanging out with us on the True Fiction Podcast. If you like what you've heard, please visit us at Facebook. You can also leave us a review on iTunes or through your favorite podcast app. Until next time, stay true and stay creative. You're too late